0: Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and this is But That's Another Story. I'm not one of those readers who feels compelled to visit the places where my favorite books are set. When I've tried, my attempts have usually ended in disappointment. I once tried to find the Hotel Edmont, where Holden Caulfield stayed in The Catcher in the Rye. As far as I can tell, it never existed. And even when literary landmarks do exist, they're not for me. I have no desire to stand outside Tiffany's before it opens at breakfast time with all the other holly-go-lightly wannabes. But I'll tell you what I do love, visiting the places my favorite authors lived and seeing where my favorite books were written. For this, my hometown, New York, is a gold mine. In the West Village, just a stone's throw from where I live, I can stand outside Edna St. Vincent Millay's tiny house and know she often stood just there. I can go to Langston Hughes' Harlem Brownstone, where he wrote so many of his greatest works. At the South Street Seaport, I can imagine Herman Melville walking the same cobblestone streets. But the best part of all is that New York isn't a museum. It's a living city. And as I walk around, I get to imagine the poems and novels that strangers are working on and what great writing will emerge from this city that's already given birth to so much. And recently, I got to talking about the literary pull of New York with today's guest.
1: Hi, I'm Kevin Kwan. I'm a professional doltant and the author of Crazy Rich Asians.
0: Crazy Rich Asians is just the first of Kevin Kwan's books, the first in a trilogy that also includes China Rich Girlfriend and rich people problems. And it's also one of the most anticipated films of the summer. Much of the series is set in Singapore, where Kevin was born and spent his earliest years.
1: I was a really typical rambunctious little tyke, basically. I ran around barefoot in soccer shorts and a tank top. And I was part of a bicycle gang that would terrorize the neighborhood. We'd steal fruit from people's gardens, you know, just fun, innocent, kind of idyllic, Huck Finn kind of childhood.
0: And The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn wasn't the only book that inspired adventures during Kevin's childhood.
1: Tintin was my favorite growing up in the colonies, you know, Tintin and Asterix, all yep. those comic books and then... Enid Blyton, who is not very well known, no much in this better country, known in, in much uh, better known in the rest of the world. I think yeah. she's the best-selling children's author in the world. So I began reading her books when I was probably four or five, and it was sort of the fantasy series. I would compare it to Harry Potter today. You know, there were goblins and elves and things like that. And then when you got a little older, when you were six to ten, there were the adventure series. You know, with all these various. English schoolboys going off on cool, crazy adventures. Is
0: that who you were sort of emulating with your uh, little band of ragamuffins? Totally.
1: Totally. Because we all read the same books, and we all sort of were recreating, you know, Pirate Land. And (laughs) when I was 11, all that changed. My father, on a moment's notice, decided to move to Texas. And uh, I think I was sort of in shock because I think I was just at that point where you're really beginning to you know going into adolescence you're really beginning to make these friends for life and I was in sixth grade and you know it was like felt like I was king of the hill finally and then he took me out of that world and planted me in the middle of suburban Houston Texas I remember walking outside of our house very normal suburban house and just being stunned that there were just rows and rows of houses and these open yards. And that struck me as really odd because I'd come from a world where everyone lived behind gates, behind fences, on pretty large estates. And here I was all exposed and you'd walk on the street, you know, at 10 a.m. in the morning and there was no one there. It was dead quiet, just all these houses and their garages and their perfectly trimmed lawns. And that freaked me out.
0: But despite the initial shock of moving to Texas, Kevin says he made quick work of adjusting to his new middle school.
1: It was easy for me, actually. You know, we moved in August, and and by September, I was in school in eighth grade. So I skipped two grades, which is a really odd thing to do because I was, you know, maybe three feet tall, and my voice hadn't broken yet. And here were these eighth graders who were gigantic, and it was a whole different social world that I knew nothing about. And then I was speaking in this sort of strange, pseudo-posh English accent. You know, I looked like a little typical, fresh-off-the-boat Chinese kid with my bowl cut. But then I would so- sort of speak like this, and they- they'd sort of go, my goodness, where are you from? You know. <laughs> well, they wouldn't say that. They'd be like, who the hell is this, you know? <laughs> so I had to lose the accent by about fifth period, and I did. Always quick to make friends, Kevin soon found
0: a new bicycle gang in Texas.
1: The entire high school experience for me, I think, was just about assimilation and beginning to understand a culture. Because I remember in high school, it was, it was for me, a rejection of academia that made me cool. I was not like the other Asian kids that were studying hard for their SATs. I was the little Asian party boy. I did so well that, you know, I really (laughs) graduated at the very bottom of my class. I had fantasies of going to Oxford, but (laughs) the reality didn't match the fantasy at all. So I I stayed home, went to junior college, and very quickly realized that slacking off was not going to cut it anymore.
0: And it was while studying at junior college that Kevin began to take his studies and literature more seriously.
1: When you're in junior college, you meet a whole new group of people who are really trying to climb out of a certain world. And this is their last chance. And that was an interesting awakening for me. And I actually got to meet some really interesting professors there. One of whom introduced me to Joan Didion. She was my English professor. Her name was Dr. Victoria Duckworth. Very cool lady mean, she was this beautiful woman with waist-long, flowing brunette hair. And she had the cool office and, you know, the cool posters of European movies. And so immediately I gravitated towards her. And she gave me a copy of A Book of Common Prayer.
0: A Book of Common Prayer was Didion's third novel, a sparsely written, incisive story about politics and wealth set in a fictional Central American country. But what stuck with Kevin more than the plot was the surgical precision with which Didion wrote, a style he found himself emulating.
1: I just was just so blown away by her use of language, and so I just wanted more. And then a friend of mine at the time said, well, you're reading her fiction. That's not her good stuff. You should be reading her nonfiction. And he gave me, if I remember correctly, my first copy of *Slouching Towards Bethlehem.
0: When we come back from the break, Slouching Towards Bethlehem sends Kevin down his own path of self-discovery. Kevin Kwan was a student in junior college when he first encountered the fiction of Joan Didion. But it was the essay collection, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, that really left its mark.
1: It's a collection of essays that I think really defined an era um, of America. It, it really was the first look at American, and specifically California, counterculture.
0: And soon, Kevin found himself pursuing the very sort of journalism Joan Didion was practicing.
1: I got accepted to University of Houston, and so I was really getting my first hard dose of trying to become a hard-nosed reporter, and to read her work and to see her as this sort of proto-journalist that really embedded and did a deep dive into a culture, and just reported about it in such a beautiful and yet unscathing way. And there was such an exquisite beauty to her use of words, and how she could just use three words to really encapsulate a whole situation. You know, I loved her economy of language, and after years and years of reading, you know, overwrought fiction, it was just so refreshing to, like, find this new voice. I think she inspired me to want to be a better writer and to really hone my language and my use of, of words and to really strip it down to the essence of what I was trying to get at. And so, interestingly enough, while I was writing nonfiction for my university newspaper and, and sort of experimenting with creative nonfiction, inspired by her work, I was also really getting into poetry. And for me, poetry was about the ultimate expression of the economy of language and choosing the most precise words and polishing, you know, each stanza like it's a diamond until it gets to a point where you have to abandon it. Because as they always say, you know, you, poems never finished, only abandoned. Only abandoned. And yeah. uh, so Joan Didion actually influenced your poetry. Absolutely. My poetry is extremely different than anything I write in <laughs> in fiction, um, and for a long time I felt it was my truer voice. They called me the designer poet what in did they my mean poetry by that? group because you know I would use words like Armani-esque within a poem, <laughs> or I would mention Prado. So there was always uh, there was always a design element or a visual element to my poetry that was quite different from what other people were writing at the time. And Didion's influence was not limited to her words. She really romanticized New York for me in a way, you know, especially in, in the essay Goodbye to All That, which is the final essay in Souching Towards Bethlehem. As much as she was trying to get away from it, that's what I wanted to come to. But it wasn't just her. I was, you know, at that point, I did feel, in a way, like I had really maxed out in Houston. I had written everything I could up to this point that was interesting. I, You know, all the teenage angst, all the young, pre-20s stuff was already in my writing. And I just needed to live. I needed to have a different adventure before I could write more. And so after a while, I, I wanted to really move to the big, big city and really have much more access to all the things that I, were interesting to me, you know, which at that time was encapsulated by places like The Strand or Rizzoli Bookstore or, or Tower Records. You know, like, it felt like all the music I wanted to hear, all the books I wanted to read, I had to always special order from New York. All the magazines I was reading were coming out of New York. That's New York I, I really wanted to be part of. I wanted to move to the village and be a writer and an artist there. And that's exactly what I did. Living in Texas for 10 years, I probably made six truly good friends. And it took me 10 years to do that. Moving to New York, I made 30 amazing new friends in the first month.
0: Kevin enrolled as a photography major at Parsons in New York, embarking on a career in art and design that had him leaving behind the poetry and writing he'd been doing in Texas.
1: When I moved to New York, I abandoned all that. You know, I I was really immersed in art school and in photography and in design and just kind of just really left that behind. For almost 20 years, I became a creative consultant and I worked for architects and interior designers and editors and artists and fashion designers. And being in that world, going to Parsons, being infused with this new visual language really influenced the way I wanted to describe this world
0: And as Kevin would travel back to Singapore throughout the years, he found himself reflecting on the way the country was changing. And soon, he found himself taking notes.
1: I think when you visit every couple of years, you see the profound changes. One year you'd be picked up in a Mercedes, the next year you'd be picked up in a Bentley, and then the following year, they don't even come to pick you up anymore. They send four maids to come pick you up, you know. So that was what was happening, and I just felt like no one's writing about that world. And I'm just going to start writing. And I didn't really, because it was a personal project, and it was because it was something I just, I thought I would maybe just only share with friends. I didn't commit myself to, is this fiction? Is this nonfiction? When I began writing, it was just, I'm telling a story of what I know. I was intending on telling a very dark story. A very Didion-esque story. You know, really an incisive, biting investigation into this world of obscene wealth. It was a pretty dark time of my life. My father had just passed away, and so I think I was also in the throes of grief. So this was my, 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 my release, in a way. And somehow my very, you know, my attempt to write an exposé you know, a very confrontational book, became a very comedic light satire, which I didn't know I had in me. I didn't know I could ever write anything funny. But, you know, the writing process has a a way of, of transforming within its process.
0: For Kevin, that writing process had him leaving behind the condensed sentences he'd been so fond of in Didion and in his previous work. Instead, the story he found himself telling represented an intersection and merging of the two worlds he knew so well, writing and design.
1: Writing Crazy Rich Asians was a whole new challenge to tell a story in fiction and to embellish and to set up a scene in a whole new way and to use more words than I ever wanted to use, ever to describe a sofa. Because it was just for me, and because I knew that, I knew certain friends would dork out on certain details and enjoy them. It was a fun folly to do, you know? Like, let's just see how I can just make this as kind of stupidly audacious for myself and for my friends because there there were no limits. You know, I wasn't censoring myself in any way. I never thought anyone beyond a small circle of friends would ever read the books and really begin to enjoy and crave more of these descriptions. (laughs) You know, that never occurred to me that that would ever happen.
0: But despite the changes in his writing style over the years, Joan Didion's influence continues to loom large.
1: I actually sought her out when I first lived in New York. She was still very active in, in doing readings. You know, she would do readings at 92nd Street Y. And I remember the first time I met her was at a reading there. She did the signing afterwards. And there were, of course, all her groupies clustering around her afterwards. And I remember coming up to her, you know, my hands were shaking. I had, like, three of my hardcover first editions, you know, White Album, Slashing Towards Bethlehem, a book of common prayer for her to sign. And I was trying to find the right profound thing to say (laughs) to her. I can't remember what I said. But I remember she said something back to me. But she she was so soft-spoken, I couldn't hear what she said. And I think that's kind of a classic experience in a way. <laughs> you know, so that's great. This like, yeah. like a
0: Citizen Kane rosebud. Yeah, moment.
1: exactly. It's like, what did she say to me? I will never know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but um, you know, life has a way of coming full circle. My first agency was Giancarlo Nesbitt. So Lynn Nesbitt is Jones' longtime agent, and you know, Lynn actually offered very kindly to put us together. And I said, you know what, sometimes you just want to leave things as a lovely, beautiful myth.
0: But That's Another Story is produced by Katie Ferguson, with editing help from Alyssa Martino, Alex Abnos, and Becky Celestina. Thanks to Kevin Kwan, Julie Ertle, and Russell Peralt. If you'd like to learn more about the books we mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at, at macmillan.com. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening.